to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Aphex, high-quality analog gear for the recording studio. For over 40 years, the patented Aphex Exciter Circuit has been audio engineer's secret weapon for signal enhancement, adding depth and punch to the lows, and clarity and sparkle to the highs. Visit Aphex.com for more information. And now your hosts, Joey Surges, Joe Wenasek, and Al Levy. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am A.L. Levy. With me is my co-host, Mr. Joel Wanasek. Joey Sturgis is on vacation on a trip, so we wish him fun on the yacht and Godspeed, and we hope to have him back soon. With us is a super special guest that we're very excited about, and we know that you guys listening are very excited about this. We've got Nolly from Periphery and Get Good Drums. How are you doing, Nolly? I'm very good, thank you. How are you guys doing? Very well. Fantastic. Yeah, happy to be here. Um, for those of you who might not be familiar with Nolly, he's an active member of the band Periphery. He plays bass, and he's their producer, though no longer touring with them, which I want to talk about some more because your production career has kind of taken off, which is really, really cool. He's worked with bands like, of course, Periphery, Animals as Leaders, Good Tiger, the Devin Townsend Project, and uh, is all in all just a prolific dude and the kind of person we like to talk to. So welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you. And uh, let's do this thing. So first things first, we have a lot of people from the Ultimate Metal Forum that come on this podcast, and uh, we actually spoke to Ermin two nights ago. Ermin Ermintovich, your uh, mastering guy, and he's also from there. He told me that that's where he met you. Yeah, totally. I, I guess you mean like the Andy Sneap Forum on uh, the sub-forum. Yes, the Andy Sneap Ultimate Metal. Yeah, man, that yep. place was a hotbed. I, I guess I kind of got in there a, a tiny bit later than, uh, like, Ermin was there from the, the beginning, really. And he was always, like, way senior than, than I was. I kind of probably be kind of embarrassing actually if I went back and found all my post history of the terrible sound clips I used to post on there but it was very <laughs> cool like really I'd, please don't do it I'm going to go and delete them before this podcast airs um, but, um, they, they will find them too oh god they are I shouldn't have said anything um, but <laughs> it's okay but, but uh, yeah like there's a whole load of really great engineers I mean like Ola England was from there there's a bunch of guys doing really amazing work and of course Andy himself used to, to post quite frequently and um, Andy was kind of a hero to all of us and still is. Um, still is. Yeah, of course. Um, so, you know, that place, I learned so much from there. I, before that, I was kind of hanging around on guitar forums like sevenstring.org, um, which is still, you know, it's an amazing place. Um, and again, kind of had its heyday a little while ago, but going from like the recording section there to this forum, which was just full of metal dudes recording really amazing sounding stuff was something that really kicked my production into into the next gear. And I met some really great people. Also, also a chap called Jeff Dunn, who uh, who does a lot of editing work, and there's an all-around stand-up guy. So. I know that the three of us came from there. I'm from there. Joel's from there. Joe is from there. It's just it's crazy how many guys that are active in the scene right now, yeah, to absolutely. some degree, come from that forum. Totally. Also, Aaron Smith. I just remembered Aaron Smith uh, from Seven Horns, Seven Eyes. Yeah. Uh, I only have one post. Oh, really? <laughs> Yeah, I, but I lurked. I mean, I read every day, and I just figured before I would post and run off with my mouth, I'd actually learn how to mix properly yeah. and get good, and then be like, all right, now rip it to shit. Cool. I mean, I yeah, I guess I was active, but I was never like a heavy poster. I think in general, that's how I am with forums. I still spend a stupid amount of time just 
like just clicking onto a forum and then clicking straight off it again, or just like reading a few a few things. But I, I don't really post on any forums any anymore. I think Facebook's kind of taken over really now, hasn't it? Like all the little Definitely. groups on Facebook. It absolutely has, and people have mixed reviews on how they feel about it. Because, for instance, on the Facebook groups, you can't search very easily, and that's kind of kind of annoying. Though totally. for anyone listening, if you want to. Uh, make your Facebook group more searchable, start using hashtags because hashtags are searchable. So, you know, if you want to, if you want to write about drum editing, write a question about drum editing and then hashtag drum editing, and then you'll be able to always search that just a pro tip for everyone. But I think that the thing that's happened is that people being habitual, like they like they are they live on Facebook and since the groups are on Facebook it just makes sense that exactly. that they would take off and so I think that forums like the old school forums to a lot of people now seem like an antiquated thing like a like MySpace or something yeah I mean even just to go to a lot of those big forums they're, they're kind of there's nothing going on there anymore just a few people posting so it's definitely definitely happened and I mean I hang out in a couple of Facebook groups and I can totally see why that's way more uh, way better and also way more life invading, I'll say. <laughs> like, you know, when you see like a birthday notification next to some dude discussing like attack times on a compressor, it, it becomes uh, it becomes your whole life. Yeah, it's it's true. So, speaking of your life, so what what got you started in music, and but more specifically, what got you started in wearing multiple hats in music? Because you're very accomplished in a few different disciplines. You're a guitarist, bassist, engineer, you know? Yeah, thanks. Those are all, each, any one of those could consume your entire life. Totally, totally. And I will say it's not like all of those are really happening at the same time. Like I think at the moment, I'm in a phase where I'm really just kind of focusing on producing and engineering. Obviously, I can still play guitar and and play bass and, and everything, but I'm not really like pushing myself in those those uh, areas but anyway yeah to answer the question I guess yeah I mean my dad was my inspiration musically he was a piano and organ player he's an uh, he's still alive but he doesn't play so much anymore a piano and organ and uh, I just wanted to be like him he listened to a lot of classical music and I was really taken by like the really powerful classical music stuff like the Beethoven the the Tchaikovsky stuff which has like cannons going off in it and stuff like that so I was always like drawn to those kinds of sounds I guess and then you know the cassettes that I used to listen to when I was young I'd always gravitate towards like the heavier songs in inverted commas like you know the rock and roll stuff as opposed to the pop stuff and then you know I I played piano for a long time I played a a couple of other classical instruments as well the 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 clarinet and the violin a little bit too so when I hit my mid-teens I really wanted to play drums actually which would have been like a real break from the classical music that I'd been playing most of my life. But drums never really panned out. Just a little. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that never really panned out, I guess, just because of the difficulty of recording drums. Uh, sorry, not recording. <laughs> Where's my mind? Uh, the <laughs> difficulty of playing drums, you know, how, how loud they are and needing space for them and everything. So what did happen, though, is I saw like a high schooler at my school playing electric guitar and actually he played the intro riff for a lit song, My Own Worst Enemy, 
And I thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my life. And uh, he had like a Stratocaster with cut up CDs stuck on the front of it, um, which obviously oh, was wow. very, edgy. very badass. So that bad. is so edgy. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I was smitten, of course. Um, so yeah, I started playing guitar soon after that. And really, that was when I guess that what we're talking about begins. Um, you know, I played guitar for a good few years before I had the ability to record myself. Did a tiny bit of recording uh, in school, but literally just like mainly MIDI stuff with, with Cubase and whatnot. So it wasn't until I was a bit older and started to really get into metal and some of the more progressive stuff, bands like Sixth. I was kind of right around that same time that I got some very cheap recording software and started trying to demo my own ideas, but it sounded so bad. Uh, this is probably something which a lot of people can resonate with. When you're trying to write, if stuff sounds really terrible, it's it just makes you want to quit. Like you, you stop recording right away and go and do something else. So Absolutely. I was never satisfied with how things sounded. And that became this quest, which kind of overtook the writing part, really, you know, overtook the, the instrument to be able to make things sound good. And, uh, you know, that brought me into contact with guys like Misha from Periphery, who I'm now in a band with, who was doing all his self-produced stuff and posting on the forums too. And guys like Dez from Good Tiger now, he was in a band called The Safety Fire. And he's also another part of Get Good Drums along with Misha. And, you know, a few other guys like that that really showed me the ropes when I was starting to record myself. And I guess more recently, the big step up was moving to recording like outside the laptop environment, like going to studios, recording drums, using microphones, because everything I was doing was in the box, you know, programmed drums and uh, with, yeah, programmed basically everything using direct guitars. And I think the next stage of the evolution for me was really getting to grips with that stuff. And uh, yeah, I was just very lucky that I guess through the music I was writing and maybe some of the company I was keeping, people became a little bit interested in what I was doing. And uh, that led to working for clients. And I've kind of had that going on all the time while I've been playing with Periphery. You know, I've been mixing on tour on my laptop on the tour bus or, you know, mixing in various studios around the world just when I have downtime. And it got to the point now where like that really is the focus for me. And uh, I really want to be able to spend some time in my own space that I know really well and just and fine hone it from here. But I'm very lucky to have worked with some really amazing clients already. And uh you know, still learning, of course, but but very much enjoying the journey. Did you meet all these people who you now work with through the internet? Yeah, you know what? I think you could probably say every, everybody. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm just going through my head. Um, literally, I can't think of anyone that I didn't meet through the internet. Like that, that's been really crucial changed. to my success. <laughs> yeah, no, really. Even because I was thinking, there's so many guys like that are local to me or in the same country at least and still uh, like you know still met them through the internet and it was just like oh, okay you're actually close enough that we can drive and meet each other as opposed to just chat online but still that initial point of contact would have always been online that's kind of amazing yeah if totally. you really stop and think about it that's pretty amazing totally yeah yeah i mean people say location matters but i think it's mattering less and less every single day because i mean i've made a career mixing out of basement and cornfields up until i moved in my new space so yeah. there you go you know <laughs> yeah totally you can still do it you can do it i've done you know all the most recent stuff i've done has been on just my laptop not in my own studio i mixed the devon townsend record with a completely borrowed setup in a tiny space in a room in south america there and, it is. You know, I mean, like, that's just necessity. <laughs> the proof is in the pudding. Yeah, I mean, that was with what? That was with um, Yamaha HS80 monitors in a basically untreated room. So it can be done, for sure. Um, uh, let, let me touch on that for a second, because 
Okay, so you mix a great sounding record in an untreated room, and Joey notoriously doesn't treat his rooms. But we always tell people who are coming up that they need to take care of their listening environment first. You know, before they go and get like crazy converters or anything like that, like once you have a good computer, we say get off the headphones, get some monitors, at least something that's decent. It doesn't have to be like, you don't have to get barefoots, just get something that works and also start treating your space so that you know what you're, so that you can recognize what's what's coming out of the speakers versus what the room is doing. But then we also tell them, you know, that you did this without any treatment or that Will Putney mixed some record on headphones when he was on some trip in Australia or that Joey doesn't use treatment. So I feel like that could be confusing people. Like, how is it that these guys can do it, but they tell us to treat their rooms it's uh, it's this funny thing which seems to happen there's like this curve that happens where when you're starting out you don't know what you're listening for and being able to hear things in a really controlled environment in an amazingly treated room allows you to develop your ear to hear the subtleties to hear what you like in really great detail and to know that you're not missing the information and i have to say of course i don't think my like certainly me and none of the other people i think would say they would prefer to mix in a less than perfect situation. I'm sure everyone would prefer to mix in a really well-treated room with great monitors. Yes. But what happens once you start to get the experience and you start to know what you're listening to is you start to need less information to be able to do your job to an extent because you know what you're not hearing. So it's kind of this strange paradox. I'm kind of thinking of this as you were talking. I was just thinking about that. It's kind of funny how you know you start out with a really bad setup then you go to like refine your setup until you can hear everything and then it kind of starts to matter less and less because you know you, you've got the experience you know what approximately a guitar should sound like when it's raw and what you're going to do to it and you have your ways of dealing with that and perhaps you have ways of utilizing visual information as well like i use uh, frequency analyzers and look at my gain reduction meters and have like processes that have become kind of tried and tested for me that proven to work even when I can't necessarily even hear with full resolution what I'm doing um so yeah you know as soon as I like I'm just back home at my monitors now for I guess three days starting to do some mixing and of course it's the best thing in the world I have a lovely treated space in in my home studio with great monitors and a big screen I can't tell you how much of a difference that makes going from keyhole surgery with a with a trackpad to you know huge screen real estate to do stuff um, but all the same, like literally I've done way more work on really, really bad systems at this point than I have on really good ones. You know, speaking of, uh, spectrum analyzers, that's another thing actually, and just on this topic of things we tell people to avoid, but that in real life, awesome dudes do end up using them. The reason we tell people to generally avoid those is so that they don't rely on, what's on a screen for EQ moves. We want them to develop their ears. 
But of it course, it also slows down the learning curve of hearing. Meaning, there's a yes. curve. You know, you learn in steps. So it's not just like you have a linear movement or a logarithmic one. It's like you, you're struggling. You mix for a while, then all of a sudden one day you're like, "Oh, dude, cool! I can hear better. Like I hear 400 hertz in everything now, and it's really annoying." And then all of a sudden, three months later, boom, 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 and you just go up the ladder. And if you're sitting there looking at curves, just because the graph says you know there's too much at 2k doesn't mean there is too much at 2k. It depends on the source and the context and. For for less experienced people that are learning to mix as opposed to have been mixing for a very long time, that can be insanely deceiving and insanely dangerous and I think slow them down. So we kind of, especially me, I really get fired up about analyzers sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think yeah, it's kind of the same thing that we, I was just talking about. I think what it takes is developing a taste and developing a sound without using those. And then being exactly. able to go back and analyze, like being like, damn, the snare sounded really good on that record. Um, maybe the source tone was a specific way, but like, let's check out what it looked like, even just as a broad, you know, like a, a broad kind of uh, landscape on a frequency analyzer, see what was going on there and be like, well, what happens if I kind of, if I make my moves, use my ear to get it sounding good, but then refine the curve a little bit to get closer to that using EQ moves, not using like EQ matching or something like that. Or, you know, looking at the low end of a bass guitar that just seems to translate really well, that you, you mixed through trial and error and, and using your ears and, you know, it has the character you want. And then over time, you're like, wow, that really translated so well. That low end's just in the right spot. Maybe you want to take note of what that looks like on an analyzer. So I never did it for the longest time. And it really was once I started having to mix a lot on headphones. Like I was mixing on the tour bus with the background, the generator going in the background <laughs> on headphones. And it's like you, you have no way of knowing what's going on with the low end there because you've got this huge low end rumble coming from the, from the generator and the headphones are deceiving anyway. And it was like, well, <laughs> I kind of have to rely wow. on something else here. And that really seemed to work for me. And I, I started to see what I started to see was like connections between the sounds that I've achieved. Uh, like, you know, if I took four snare sounds that I achieved that I was really happy with, I could see that they all kind of fell into this general broad outline, like a, this kind of landscape, which happens to be like fairly flat across an equalizer if the equalizer is pink noise weighted. And I was like, well, if I just, if I make my moves and then see how close it is to flat and then maybe make a couple more adjustments just to flatten it out, maybe that's going to result in a snare that just cuts, like sits the way that I want it to. And it totally does. But I didn't get that from analyzing other people's work. Or well, maybe just a little bit, but but you know it was really the, the important thing was it came from me, uh, like working through trial and error, real blood, sweat, and tears, and depression over over what I was doing, which I think every creative goes through. But you know, like oh, yeah. finally <laughs> arriving at a result that works and being like, "Damn, I need to do this every time. How am I going to do that?" Then to me, uh, like, there's nothing wrong at all with using a tool like a spectrum analyzer. That makes perfect sense. And that, that would be what we could call it, like the correct way to do it. Yes, you know, it's uh, it's a tool to be used, but you have to know when and where to use it. It's not a crutch, and yeah. I think there a very clear distinction has to be made. Totally, and yeah, just this this whole thing I'm talking about, where it's like you you kind of your cycle as you start to improve at what you're doing is is really it's funny, really. Like if you go back and look at one of my first sessions I did, like now none of the things seem too striking, but like uh, maybe I'd make moves now that were like considered crazy when I was learning and it was like, you know, somebody would have told you like, no, you don't need to boost that by 12 dB or something. And I was just kind of following my ears and making a horrendous mix. But now it's like, I kind of feel like I have the, 
the experience to know when that's necessary. And I know that that's something that a lot of other professionals feel the same way. It's like, actually, as you get more experience, you start doing crazier stuff again. I remember sitting, well, perching over Colin Richardson when he was mixing my band's album. And he, I remember he was like, I want more low end in the guitars. He was on a Neve. And he was like, well, let's just turn 90 up 12 dB. And that just blew my mind because who turns 90 up 12 dB on a guitar? Right. But he did it and it sounded incredible. And uh, I think that just goes to what you're saying, that once, once you become a master of this stuff, you start to know exactly when you can do crazy things that would otherwise be looked at as just pure crazy. Actually. Totally, totally. And of course, I'm, I'm not calling myself a master, but you know, everyone falls somewhere along this curve. And the other thing is, for me, frequency analyzers give me the courage to do that. Like, I could do a move like that and then check it out and then analyze it and be like, have I done something really crazy? Am I going to regret this? And maybe it just looks great to me, like nothing looks too out of control on the analyzer because I kind of know in my mind what most source stones should look like on there and be like, cool, great, let's roll with it. So do you have any other, I guess, other tools that you use or techniques that you use for making sure that your mixes that are done in less than ideal environments translate well? I think that that's applicable to lots of our listeners because lots of them are stuck in headphones or don't have a nice studio yeah, just I mean, learning. you know, I think the best, the best other tool which I could say really would just be information, like really knowing the software that I'm using or the the hardware that I'm using. Well, okay, if we're talking about mixing on laptop, or whatever, then it's all going to be in the box. But for me, really, it is about having tools that you know really well. You know how they work. You know how to get good results with them, and to trust them to do what it is that you need. Like. That doesn't mean you can't experiment, but do lots of experimentation and kind of be scientific about it. Kind of figure out in your head, make a checklist of like, this equalizer works really well in this way. I can get really quick, easy, good results on guitars with this equalizer. Or this compressor just sounds great for bringing out the attack on on a drum. But, you know, this other compressor has a cool character that works sometimes. So maybe you're mixing and you're like, well, this compressor isn't working, you know, straight away to go to your other one. It's just like really knowing the tools that you have to be able to work quickly and not be working with completely unknown elements all the time. Now, of course, experimentation is really cool and you should definitely try and push yourself on every session to try something new. But there is something to be said for having certain processes that that you are very comfortable doing, that you know the results or you know how the results should be as a baseline to compare against. So I don't know that I have more tricks per se, but I'd say that certainly if you want to do that stuff, you need to be comfortable with the tools you're using. Otherwise, you're going you're gonna to go round and round in circles. So the trick is just do the damn work. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, honestly, if you really care about this stuff, it probably won't feel like work. Well, yeah, like, fair it's, enough. It's fun, or, or at least like something that you feel like you really want to spend time doing. So, so speaking of tools, you're a Logic Pro X user. Um, mm-hmm. what, what drew you to that as opposed to say, Pro Tools or Cubase? You said you used Cubase earlier. I did. That was just on like the school computers. Oh, okay. And it was like really old school Cubase. I forget which which version it was. But no, it was very simple. Like once I started getting into recording, I got a MacBook, like I guess everybody does. And um, it had GarageBand, which I used, sorry, GarageBand. Um, <laughs> GarageBand on it, which, uh, <laughs> which uh, I... It was like, this is cool. It's kind of limited, though. What's the next step? And I got Logic Express, which doesn't exist anymore. Um, but it was kind of like a slightly intermediate step between GarageBand and Logic Pro. And 
I just learned that really. I, I just rolled with it. Obviously, Pro Tools. I, I knew about the other doors and Pro Tools. Everyone was telling me it was the, the thing that I needed, but at the same time, you had to buy all of the associated hardware to go with it. And yeah, Logic just worked for me for what I was doing, and I stuck with it. And I think the cool thing is it's continued to improve a lot. I think maybe back then there was definitely stuff that kind of sucked about it. But now it seems to me like all the doors have really converged I to agree. a point. Like, you know, there's certain, it's like every door has one or two functions that I'm like, wow, that's so cool. I wish Logic had that. Or maybe I should use that door just for that feature. But ultimately, whenever I'm doing something and I want to feel comfortable, I'm going to go to the thing which I know the best, and that's Logic. Yeah, fair enough. I, we always tell people that as long as they're not using like Mixcraft or something or GarageBand to try <laughs> to do. You know, as long yeah. as they're not using a toy, yeah. Just pick, just pick a DAW and go. Yeah, like, really. Like, who cares? Just do it, man. If if Logic had slip editing, then I don't think I would look with lust at any other door ever again. To be honest. Well, the one thing that I've heard is that the editing in Logic is not that great. Like we know that Putney, even though he loves mixing in Logic, he'll edit in Pro Tools, for instance. Is that everything, or just drums, or what? Drums. Like, I actually think drum editing is great in Logic. Like the slicing mode, the flex time. Flex time scares people because they think it's like a time-stretching thing, but I guess the slicing mode is kind of like slip editing, really just cutting in and, and moving stuff around and crossfading. And I, I love editing with that. That's what I use for everything. But, you know, just being able to slip things to and forwards inside a region without actually moving the region would make all the difference. And we actually tracked the new Periphery album, Guitars and Bass, into Cubase on Misha's setup because he's a Cubase user. And I got used to doing that pretty quickly. And being able to slip edit saved so much time for stuff. So I. Yeah, once you slip, it's hard to go seriously, back. Seriously, it had me looking into um, PreSonus Studio One, actually, because that has slip editing. And um, I downloaded the trial of that while we were recording P3 just to see what I could do with it. And I don't know, it looked awesome, like genuinely, but. Certainly for mixing, like I felt very out of place with that. I would, I would want to use Logic for mixing, but still at the back of my mind, maybe the next project, if I'm going to track myself doing something, like if I record some of my own music, maybe I'll download Studio One again, like the demo onto my main computer and, and see, see how that goes and then mix in Logic, but just have to see, I guess. So I have a question about this new Periphery album. Okay. And just uh, you and Periphery, how did you get to the point where they trusted you to actually record them. And the reason I ask is because, I mean, maybe on the outside, it's like, oh, okay, it makes sense. That's an obvious move. The guy in the band who knows how to record should record the band. But I know that they've been very, very picky in the past about their recordings. And, you know, it's no small thing to have them allow someone to record them. And I also know that from being in a band and from working with tons of bands that just because someone is in the band and knows how to record doesn't mean that the band is going to be cool with that person recording them. And sometimes they're less cool with it just because they have that brotherly relationship where they're not going to take them seriously as a producer. So how did it come about that they were just cool with it? Like, how, how did it evolve to that point? Well, I think that the answer is that it did evolve because... The first album Misha did on his own, that was all like in the box with, with um, you know, drums played on an e-kit and just everything done kind of uh, home studio style. And then for the next album, they wanted to do the studio experience. So they went to Taylor Larson's studio for Periphery 2. And I don't really know why they chose to take a chance on me. I mean, I was a good friend of theirs, but 
I guess Misha really liked what I was doing with my band, which um, which is called Red Sea's Fire. They're still going without me. And uh, like, I guess he liked what I was doing with the recordings I was doing for them. And he was like, it'd be cool to have you there as well. So they flew me out to um, to kind of be there as a, an additional producer or something. I, I don't really know what they had in mind, but the role kind of grew as time went. I ended up playing all the bass on the record and also doing a lot of the engineering. Like most of the session... Uh, became like just Misha and I or the Misha and one of the other guitarists and I just going to the studio on our own and tracking ourselves and you know that just developed this rapport but still at that point Matt had done all the drums with Taylor and Taylor has a really unique and fantastic way of tracking drums that gets awesome awesome sounds and I think that for me was like the inspiration to be like wow it'd be so cool to move away from program drums to doing the real thing if they sound this good so you know, I spent a lot of time after P2 recording real drums just with other bands around and developing my own techniques and was helped a bit by Taylor too. So when it came to Juggernaut, which was the next, uh, it was like a double album, everyone was on board with me tracking like the guitars and bass and uh, Spencer always does his own vocals, so that's kind of a, a separate thing. But with the drums, Matt still wanted to do it at Taylor's place with him there because Matt and I hadn't really developed a rapport with recording drums, which of course is such a more finicky process. But... That process turned out to be something that really solidified our relationship um, in the studio. And from then on, you know, I've been working with Matt on our drum tones every day on tour, tuning his drums, placing the mics, recording the stems from our live show and trying mixing them, like literally trying to get the live drum sounds from the microphones to sound like they were recorded in a studio. And um, so by the time it came to recording something new, it was like, well, this is what we have to do. Like Matt and I really understand each other. And I think that was the final piece of the puzzle, really. So I think the mixing of Juggernaut came along just because like, they really liked how it was sounding as we were working. There was never a plan mm-hmm. for somebody else to mix it, but you know, it kind of came out really cool uh, as far as they were concerned. And, and there was no reason to involve somebody else. They did actually try working with a couple of producers in the downtime between Juggernaut and... Sorry, actually, it was before Juggernaut. I'm getting my dates confused. Before Juggernaut, they did try uh, working with a couple of producers, including David Bendeth. But that didn't really work out. I think everyone went in very open-minded and and wanted to see what somebody else could bring to the table. But I think what that really brought to the table was it showed people that nobody else is going to come in and be, you know, be God, basically. They're not going to come in and make the record awesome. All they're going to do is apart from like the engineering side of things, is they're going to try and maintain like the psychological side of the band, which, to be honest, was, was pretty good. The band's gotten awesome at communicating, and there just wasn't reason for somebody else to be involved um, making us doubt our own decisions. So so at this point, it's, it's all in-house, and, um, and we're very happy with it that way. It's, it's awesome that they took a chance on me back with Periphery 2, and, and as I say, it's kind of evolved to the point where it is now. Hey, guys. A.L. Levy here. I just want to take a moment to talk to you about some awesome things happening at Nail the Mix this month. This month, as you probably know, we have Nolly from Periphery as a guest mixer. What you get when you sign up for that are the raw multi-track stems for the Periphery song Prayer Position. You get to enter a mix competition with those tracks. We have awesome prizes for first and second place. They're provided by Aphex, legendary hardware manufacturer. You get an Aphex channel, which is a hardware channel strip. It's really super awesome. And second place gets their HeadPod 4, which is 
a badass headphone amp. Then at the end of the month, after the mix competition is over, Nolly will be mixing Prairie Position live on video stream for you to be able to watch and interact with him about it. So if you have any questions, he'll be answering them. We also have an hour-long Q&A with him. You can ask him anything you want. And we have an amazing community of people just like you who are learning how to mix and who are ready to help each other out. One last thing I just wanted to mention is that with your subscription to Nail the Mix, we have a special bonus right now on Get Good Drums. You get $20 off of your purchase of Get Good Drums, and you can find that inside the bonuses section of your Nail the Mix account. So just go to nailthemix.com slash periphery1 to subscribe and start mixing today. I think that gaining the trust of a client is one of the hardest things you can possibly do when you're coming up. And uh, I think that that's one of the things that lots of our listeners have trouble with as they're coming up and they're trying to get new clients to come through the door and maybe give them money for the very first time. Uh, you know, it's a challenge because they're new and nobody trusts them. And I think that it's something that definitely, whether it's your situation being in periphery or a guy just coming on the local scene, it's something that has to evolve naturally. And uh, it really is one of the most important things you can possibly have going in your favor if you want to uh, be working with bands. Totally. Yeah, you're completely right. And I'm, I'm incredibly lucky. I really am incredibly lucky because, because of the connections I made on the internet going back to that, like, yeah. you know, these, these people turned out to really <laughs> change my life and it can happen. Like you never know how it's going to happen, but it's, it's really is networking. It's, it's like the old school version of going to like a cocktail evening. It's like, you know, it really is networking with these with these other people that might turn out to become the industry. You know, this idea, if you asked me what I thought the music industry was years and years ago, I thought it was like this really tight group of people that were industrial, but it's not really like that at all. It's just people. It's, uh, you know, you, these people become the music industry. These people online just recording their demos and, uh, you know, doing cool things become the next wave. And if you have connections to those people, then you never know what might happen. Uh, you know, very true. What's, uh, I think that networking is one of those words that's very misunderstood too, because, you know, everyone says you got to network, you got to network. And it's absolutely true. You have to network. But a lot of people misunderstand what networking means. And they think that it means going up to people and punishing them. Totally. Um, and or semi-harassing them. And I think that one thing that you just said is really, really important, and it echoes my own experience, which is you meet people and you don't know what the future's gonna hold. So you just establish a relationship with people. And then hopefully if things go well, it evolves into something, but you can't, you can't really approach these relationships with that in mind. You have to just build these relationships and let the future unfold as it will. And if you have something to contribute, more likely than not, if you have a good relationship, your chance will come around by virtue of having these relationships. Totally, yeah. I think I think the misconception is people think it's a way more active thing than it is. It's really kind of passive. Like, beyond putting yourself out there, like being open to meeting people and talking with people, you're not actively seeking 
something. In fact, I think all of the best contacts that I've had, like best in inverted commas, like the people at labels and stuff, were by far like the least useful really to my journey. You know, it was the, it was the people that were around me that, that we were friends with and we developed ideas together. It's so difficult to go to somebody that's like on a, a way higher level than you and just become on that level with them. Like they're used to that. Doesn't, all the time. It doesn't work that way. It, it doesn't totally work that doesn't. way at all. No. Yeah. There's always going to be like a power perching kind of uh, when you're going in to somebody who's in a bigger position, you know, they're always going to have that like, Oh, well you're the new guy. So, totally. you know, it's not the same. Oh, it's like, if you're trying to make, fr- I, I don't know, it's like people that meet their rock star friends and uh, like, sorry, they're, they're rock star heroes and somehow think that there's something that they can say in that conversation. That's going to turn it them into like best friends. You know what I mean? Like I couldn't go to James Hetfield. There'd be nothing I could say to him really that would suddenly make him change his role as like the dude that I'm going to as a fan. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Does that not make sense? I don't know. No, that makes perfect sense unless he was to come to you. Right, exactly. uh, Like if we had something in common, if there was something there, but like, well, okay, maybe James Hetfield's a a bad example because he's in the metal world. So maybe I could find some kind of six degrees of separation there. But like, I don't know, like Leonardo DiCaprio. Like, what could I say to Leonardo DiCaprio that would make us best friends? I think even James Hetfield's a perfect example, though, because he is metal royalty. Right. You know, uh, even to those of us who are established in our own rights, like Metallica is so far beyond, (laughs) you know, anything for any of us that I think that that's a good example. Or yeah, Leonardo DiCaprio. It's like once you're in that situation where you're trying to get something out of somebody. The other thing is that those people who are at the top have basically like a spidey sense for this shit. Like they can sniff out when someone wants something from them, the way that dogs can sniff drugs. (laughs) It's, it's (laughs) like they, they are in tune with that and repelled by it. And, and you won't even know, like they'll be perfectly gracious. And if you're not, you know, if, if you're the kind of person that, that's doing that, you're probably not even going to realize that they've already kind of spotted you and they'll have moved on. Yep. I remember, like, when we played Soundwave Festival in Australia, Metallica were the headliners. This is funny. I don't know why I chose James Hetfield, but this is making it actually better. Um, <laughs> they, they, held, they held a barbecue on the first day. And nobody thought that, like, the band themselves would be there, but they totally were. I actually didn't go, but the rest of my bandmates did. And, like, of course, there was the people trying to go up to those guys and and push their bands even like guys in fairly big bands wanted to become best friends with these guys but the people that ended up chatting with them the most were the people just being cool with them and and maybe there were some connections made there but they certainly weren't going there like hey check out my band or let me produce your band or something like that bring us on tour dude direct support exactly like how's that (laughs) you can't just tell someone that and and make it happen so if you are meeting somebody that's kind of higher up in the industry just be cool and be humble and Maybe try and talk about something apart from what you do and what they do. Yes, like something that you guys can both share. That's why people talk about the weather. Yeah, um, really and nice. as as uh, as I guess superficial as that sounds, and as I guess low low on the I guess low on the importance scale. The reason that people talk about the weather is because it's non-intrusive. And it's something that you can both agree upon. Totally. You're both experiencing it right then. Yes, exactly. And you can go from there. If, uh, But that, that's why people talk about movies, about sports, about 
whatever. It's a good icebreaker. And I think that, like, uh, especially at NAM and these networking events, you know, when you get bombarded by people with business cards, for instance, you have no idea who they are. I just have to say that I have never once had any sort of business relationship come about from any of the people who like hound me at NAM. However, I have had lots of really good business relationships and friendships develop out of people I've met at NAM and just like got in a drink with and maybe exchange emails and hit them up like a month later or talk to them over the course of a year and you know exchange funny pictures on the internet and shit because totally. I like I find weird shit on the internet and, <laughs> and yeah you do yeah oh yeah I'm, I'm it comes to me so and I send it to my friends and uh, you know become friends and maybe a year or two later those things come to fruition now of course like I've gone to Nam with like specific meetings in mind and done business that way but I'm talking about people that you just kind of meet casually for the first time I've never had anything materialize w- from getting punished. Yeah, no, me neither. I me think neither. this is an amazing topic, actually, because I'm just thinking as we're t- discussing this about all the different people I've met in my career and some of the most insignificant people that I never thought, like, that band will never do anything or this person definitely, like, that's the person that leads you to meet somebody else that leads you to meet somebody else and then, you know, 10 years later you look back and you're like, wow. I mean, for example, I met Joey through some completely insignificant band that was a band for like three days after the one song we did in the studio which led to another band which was working with him and we met and hung out and then many years later now we're all business partners and it's just crazy like if I hadn't had that band and that kid show up at my studio on that one particular day you know while that band had a you know a two-week life it just who knows where we'd all be. Totally, you know? yeah. So, totally. Just little things like that. And there's so many examples of that. I'm sure you guys can all think of in your careers where suddenly you randomly meet some person and they just have this massive role in your life. And then you're just like, wow, how did that even happen? So it's important to go in kind of with like no expectations and just be cool and build rapport with people, you know, be respectful and, you know, be do, do something or offer something worthy of being respected. Totally. And I mean, just to add something on, like I've definitely... This is kind of a negative thing, but like, there's definitely been people that have punished me or people that I know who you find out later are really talented, like really talented, amazing. Like if if they had approached you any other way, then probably something could have happened. And yet, yeah. even with that, it's so difficult to take that person seriously. Like you, you're not going to give them a shot because of just how they approached you in that beginning. And it's just just human nature unfortunately but like I can think I'm definitely not going to name names so I can think of people off the top of my head where later I've heard their music or heard their work and been like wow that guy's really really awesome but he was kind of a dick I think that it's very important for that to be said because one thing that we tell people all the time is your social skills are arguably as important as your music skills maybe maybe not as important but they're pretty damn important because it makes no difference how good you are if people don't want to give you a shot. Yeah, totally. And it doesn't have to be a scary thing. Like, you don't have to be the most charming person in the world, but, like, no. just don't be a dick. Like, just be nice <laughs> and, and try not yeah. to brag too much and try not to humble brag. That's one thing I see all the time, uh, especially online, is people humble bragging. I don't know if this is... This is just a term that my friends and I use. I don't know if it's a real word, but it's like when people... 
make like a a post or say something which is positive, like kind of giving thanks for something, but using that as a way of slipping in, like talking about their achievements. Try not yes. to do that. Try not to do that if you can. It can, you know, there's always going to be stuff that crosses the line. And of course, if you want to have any kind of online presence and show people what you're doing, if you've got something to show, you kind of have to talk about yourself, but try to reserve it for times when it's really necessary. Like don't use, you know, some current events or, or like, uh, yeah, just, just try and be, try and be wary of what you're doing. Don't, don't allow the bragging to seep in. I think if you're going to be promotional, be promotional and overt about it and people will respond to it fine. I think it's when people try to mask it behind humility that it starts to get weird because people can sniff that out. It makes you seem fake. It's There's nothing fake about saying, I have this, I'm or say, I'm super proud of something I did. Like, a record I did charted in the top 20. I'm fucking proud of it, proud of my team, proud of the record. There's nothing wrong with saying that. Right. However, it, it's just when you start to like give mixed signals. Yeah. That's when I think it starts to get weird, and it starts to weird people out. Totally. And so I completely agree. And just to just to say, like, um, one of the people in my life that has had one of the biggest impacts is uh, my friend Finn, who uh, people know him as Sergeant D from Metal Sucks, and he's. Uh, he, you know, he founded the Creative Live Audio Channel. You guys all know Finn, but the way that I became friends with him was we were both writing for Metal Sucks a long time ago, and I liked his writing. And I just sent him an email one day about one of his blogs, and was like, "You made some great points, but did you think of this?" And uh, we just started talking, and I had no, no career objective out of the whole thing and you know one thing led to another and we've done lots of great work together and had a huge impact on each other's lives professionally but it all came from just talking shit about blogs and uh becoming friends and some of the people that have had the most impact on my life it's been through relationships that kind of evolved that way yeah no totally finn's a great guy he's uh he's helping us out with get good drums as well Really, really top guy. Yeah, he's amazing. He's uh, an excellent person to know. Definitely is. For sure. And it's his birthday today. Really? Oh, my God. How did I not know that? Happy birthday, Finn. I texted him this morning, and I wished him an unhappy birthday to be punk. Wow. (laughs) I mean, everybody's like, happy birthday, man. Good wishes. And I'm like, nah, 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 dude. I'm going to do something funny and different. (laughs) Yeah, so everyone listening to this, even though this is coming out a week after, still, you can hit up Finn McKenty on Facebook and wish him a happy Dude, birthday. We have to get more people to wish him an unhappy birthday than a happy birthday just yeah, so yeah, the Joel's okay. joke backfired. Oh, yeah. Even better, yeah. <laughs> Everybody find him, Finn McKenty, uh, or look up his Facebook group, the Punk Rock MBA. Uh, join his group and uh, wish him an unhappy birthday. Yeah. So we need to go to the forums after this podcast and start the movement. I feel yeah. like this could be a trend. Yeah, I think we're going to do that. I think that's going to happen. I mean, I thought... He's got the punk rock MBA, right? So, you know, everything is punk rock there. And I love that group. That's actually a really, really great group. And if you guys are on Facebook, you should definitely check that out. There's a lot of great information, a lot of really smart, cool people there. Um, so, you know, they're always talking about like 
being punk and, you know, breaking the trend and things like that. So I don't know. I was, I was just having a little fun this morning, but yeah, we might as well go for it and see how hard we can push it. I'm in. <laughs> I don't know how happy a birthday he had because I know he was on a ton of email chains with me and he was definitely responding to them. So he clearly had a working one. Maybe it was an unhappy birthday. Well, now it's your prerogative. Maybe to he's going to cry about this, dude. Birthday. I don't know. <laughs> I, he loves his work, so so we'll just pretend like it's a happy birthday. All right. Sorry, but what we, were you going to ask him? <laughs> I was, gonna, I was just going to say, let's talk about <laughs> some uh, technical stuff. Sure. So the uh, the bass tone on that playthrough video that I, I emailed you about it mm. um, is the prayer position playthrough video yeah uh how how did you do that it sounds incredible it, it, did you use dark glass on that what is that yeah okay so yeah i did a, a playthrough video uh, recently for a song off our new album called prayer position and yeah yeah so it's it's funny i think honestly the biggest component of probably any good bass tone comes from like the instrument and the player and, and I know people say that all the time but it's really true. Oh, it's true. It's I true. did um I did a, a another video which I don't know if I can talk about just yet. It's 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 just like a demonstration of a cool new product with another one of my bases and I've got a feeling that people are going to think that it's exactly the same tone when really the tone like if you hear it in isolation at least is really quite different but it just has that same character. So yeah, okay, so the bases I use are the Dingwall uh, NG2s, which is my signature model, um, which really is just a very minor modification on the already existing combustion model. Now, uh, Dingwall guitars have, or Dingwall basses have fan frets, so what they have is a really long scale on the low end. Sheldon's been doing this for years and years, um, and kind of the world is just catching up with how amazing his creations really are and how appropriate they are for metal music, because the thing is, if you play rock and metal, most people default to technology that dates back to like the 60s like they're playing jazz basses or p basses or whatever so maybe even older than the 60s and they're playing them through like ampeg rigs which are just about as old as well and it's like there hasn't really been a modern instrument out there designed to handle like the really low tunings that you need to to go to if you're going to compete with the guitarist playing really low so as soon as i discovered dingwall guitars that was just like there's no no real reason to go anywhere else for bass tone and a huge part of the character you're hearing in that video is is simply the bass and uh you know maybe people that own the the signature bass can attest to, to that fact like the di has that character it just really does we had a couple of dark glass pedals. We had the supersymmetry compressor, which wasn't doing too much. Um, I think I've kind of been doing less and less bass compression as um, as I go forwards. It's still a fair bit of compression, but I think I saved some compression for kind of after the fact during mixing. We were also using the new B7K Ultra, which is the all singing, all dancing, um, amazing version of the the B7K, which is kind of the, the really famous pedal that the Dark Glass made. Yeah, that pedal's the shit. It really is. I absolutely love it. So it's a it's, it's a distortion so pedal. It's just got the gnarliest sounding distortion. The Ultra version has basically switchable frequencies for the mid controls, which is great because the other one's more fixed. It also has the option of switching between, like you can you can use the EQ section on it without the the gain so if you can basically get two channels but i don't really use it like that so we had the the compressor we had the pedal and then that was just running di i was taking like a clean di and the pedal di as well and then i mixed that in the box completely with logic so i was using that into 
I, I kind of bypassed using any actual amp modeler. I just went straight to a cabinet modeler. Um, I just use an impulse that I, I tend to use a lot, which is uh, an Ampeg SVT cab, um, mic'd with a 421, you know, real standard fair for bass. And uh, is it an impulse you made yourself? It's not. No, it's it's a Red Wires impulse, which you know they they were like one of the first guys out on the scene doing like really detailed multi-position impulse responses and I must have bought like the whole bundle I guess like six years ago or something like that and you still use them I still use them maybe not for everything like actually I'd say that bass one I use way more than I use any of the guitar ones and I know that impulse technology has definitely got way higher resolution than it was back then but it doesn't seem to hold things back with the with the bass anyway so yeah so basically I'm just using that because I'm taking a DI distortion and, and using the cabinet, just like an EQ, basically, so it, it smooths things out a lot. Then you have to boost back a load of top end again because that's quite a dull-sounding impulse. Some compression. I don't think I did any multiband compression on that. I, it was actually a pretty quick job, um, the mixing of that, and I wasn't... I didn't really take too much time even thinking about it. I was like, oh, that sounds cool. And it wasn't until I think I was in uh, DC recently uh, at Misha's place. And I was like, oh, you check out check out this playthrough video before it came out. Because uh, we were all doing our playthrough videos. And we checked it out on his like little Neumann speakers that he has. And I was like, damn, that sounds really good. And, yeah. uh, and then it came out. And it's like every comment on there is people saying it's like, you know, an amazing bass tone and dude, it sounds ridiculous. Thank you, thank you. And um, and I'm I, I'm not like I don't throw around compliments either. So thank you. Just so just so you know, I'm not like I'm not I don't kiss ass or throw around compliments, but it just sounds ridiculously awesome. Thank you, man. It's true. Awesome. Cheers. I, you know, to be honest, Can't argue with science. Guys. To be honest, I prefer it to the bass tone that we got on the album, which sucks <laughs> to say, man. Like, it kind of sucks to say because we spent loads more time sculpting the tone on the album, um, and I did this like just a couple of months later. But yeah, um, I'm still happy with the album tone. But yeah, if, if I could go back in time, I would totally have used that exact tone for for the album. But yeah, you know, something else is I came from playing guitar, as we mentioned earlier, and when I came to playing bass, like, yeah, it's it's kind of tricky playing bass and periphery because you know with the long scale it makes a lot of the more noodly stuff that i have to double more tricky but at the same time like it's definitely not as technically demanding so the thing which i really set myself about uh, you know what, what i really set myself to doing was developing really great bass technique like pick technique that sounds really consistent and finding instruments the gear and the setup and just refining every aspect of my of my of my bass world to sound as good as it possibly could because to me like the glory of a bass tone is really in how it sits in the mix and it's less to do with shredding and catching people's attention so you know I kind of set about doing that and and it's been a, a huge amount of fun actually developing that so you know some of the things that I really like to do with bass is to use a fairly thin pick I use a 0.60 mil pick wow. which a lot of people use really heavy jumbo picks on on bass for one I pick really hard and I've actually broken a fair share of really thick bass strings you know 145s and stuff back when I was trying to do that um, but secondly the thin pick kind of acts like a compressor as I've said this in a few different interviews but it's like when you pick harder it flexes more when you pick softer it's more rigid so it's like especially as you move through the strings you just get this way more even sounding pick attack i don't know there's just i'm with you on yeah that. yeah and i like recording basses very similar to that i mean i'm not a bass player but i've recorded enough basses and i really do like the thinner picks. Yeah. i think they sound really cool you get that kind of wet like springy snap 
that sounds a bit like you've yeah. compressed it as well. Like it makes it sound yeah wet in that way that like you know a compressed bass has it, but just straight off the DI. Um, yeah, I think no. it, it it bears noting though before everyone listening runs off and gets thinner medium picks that you play hard as a beast. Like anyone listening should check out this playthrough video and focus on Nolly's right hand. I mean, you play hard as hell. Thank and you. that's a huge part of it sounding good. Like if someone was to just like pussy pick it with a medium or light pick, it would not sound that great. No. In my opinion. No, that happens a lot of the time when yeah, I I've definitely recorded plenty of bands where I've dialed in the bass tone and then pass the bass over to the bass player and it really doesn't sound the same. Not to say that it sounds bad, but it just doesn't sound like me. Uh, but certainly I think there is a point. If you're picking really light, then you're not really going to get the most out of it. No, it, it's uh, that you need to play bass hard, in my opinion. Like, there's something about the bass guitar that comes to life when you beat the shit out of it. You got to play guitar hard, too. I mean, if it's yes. got a string, you might as well move the string right <laughs> man so i've got a slightly different Without perspective on that actually yeah you you play like authoritatively but for me there's and it's almost subconscious now but it's like the pick angle like how flat to the, the string you pick um can really I, I don't know like the problem i hear a lot of the time when people are playing really hard is it doesn't sound in tune like you play a chord oh, and yeah. all the strings go like well oh, yeah. away from yeah. each other and you get like them all going sharp but like I don't even really know how to define it, but it's something that with my guitar playing has actually improved through playing bass as well. That like there is a way that you can play really like with power, but without sending it out of tune. So my my caveat to, to playing hard is like it needs to sound good and in tune and of course you need to figure out yeah, how to do skill. that. It is a skill and it's it's quite a refined one you actually. You have to train it and optimize it. And a lot of guitar players never or bassists or anybody who plays one of those types of instruments, they never sit down and they really think about like their pick attack and what angle and how hard and how stiff they're holding their finger and what part of the bridge they should be or you know how close to the bridge they should be picking on this particular part of the riff when they're at this part of the neck and how it might want to change when you're using an open string. Or it's very important totally. those little tiny nuances. But once you learn how to really get the best tone out of the instrument for each note of the song, you can teach your guitarists and bassists to record that way and get much better sounding. Uh, raw tracks. Yeah, I think it's about control. It, the power, like when we say playing hard, we of course, I guess we fi figure that it's assumed, but it shouldn't be assumed that we mean hard but controlled. Um, not hard, not just play hard and loose as hell, because that leads to an out of tune, sloppy, garbage, unusable track. Mm hmm. Yeah, totally. And yeah, it's crazy how different different guitarists can sound playing through the same rig as well. Like when we record periphery oh, stuff, yeah. there's essentially four guitarists on hand. There's myself, Misha, Mark, and Jake. And, you know, there's plenty of riffs where we each, like one person's recording it and someone's like, oh, it's not sounding right. Or the person themselves is like, yeah, I'm not getting this right. You try playing it. And it's not that the person doesn't have the technical facility to play it. It's just that like, you know, like Misha has this way of getting the coolest stringy, attacky palm mutes. Um, my palm muting sound tends to be way more kind of open and, and bloomy sounding. Um, Mark has like this really kind of flustery thing going on. Jake has this really precise way of playing. And it's like, you know, we, we experiment with that in the studio. Just, yeah, it's got to the point where like, I, I guess I've been really spoiled tracking guitarists where to be honest, it's, it's. I don't know that I have so much patience to track guitarists that aren't 
on that level. Uh, something I have to say. I was literally thinking about that in the shower today when I was thinking about the podcast. I was like, am I going to say that or not? Um, it's okay. But, but yeah, no. But yeah, totally. <laughs> like, the, yeah, the more high-profile clients I work with, the more experienced guys I work with, um, the more it's just clear to me that like you really, it needs to be at that level. It just has to be. And I'm very lucky that with Periphery, you know, everyone takes great pride in what they do and that makes for good sounding results. And that makes my job easier and that makes me seem like I did an amazing job with the album. And, you know, sure, I worked really hard on it, but if they didn't do their stuff well, then it would have been a mess. Well, there's a reason for why, even before the digital revolution in recording, that there was a whole industry of session musicians. And that's because producers have always known that without getting great performances and without the musicians doing their job you don't have shit it doesn't matter how good you are at recording or mixing like you don't have shit without great performances and there was you know the that industry has been kind of decimated the session musician industry but there was a time where if the band members couldn't hack it someone would get hired to come in and replace them and now the way that that's changed is that now the producers, um, at least in metal, will just grab the guitar and play it for the band. Totally. But it, it's uh, there. That whole principle has, hasn't changed, and it's been around since the beginning of recording. You can't, you can't get around it. The source tone, maybe it's not everything, but it's almost everything. Dude, I mean, yeah, I think with time as I've developed my mixing technique i think i've come to realize that i am a source tone mixer as it were like i don't necessarily do that well mixing stuff that has been recorded in less than optimal ways like or or that has like loads of stuff left up to to me to decide like you know di'd guitars and bass and program drums and and all that stuff like sure i can make it work but the really good results come when i'm delivered something that's awesome and I don't even feel bad saying that because, of course, that's what you get when you go to those big, big league guys. They're working with really good musicians with really good music recorded really well. So the results naturally come out awesome. And just so you know, one of the comments that we keep hearing over and over from our subscribers about the uh, about the raw stems that they're mixing right now for Nail the Mix is that they're astounded by how stellar they sound raw that's amazing and and we give them good stuff every month i mean it's not like you know it's not like machine head was recorded badly or anything like that like we give them good top quality stuff every single month but they're just blown away by how great the periphery stuff sounds just on its own just loaded right into the session that's the hugest compliment for me honestly like i think i started doing something probably about three years ago which is like just this mental exercise with everything i did there was like when i'm engineering something that i really care about like well two things really like one be able to explain why you did everything and secondly prepare it as though you had to show it to like your idol producer like the guy that you look up to the most. Imagine he was going to sift track by track through what you'd done. And would you be comfortable doing that? And of course, like you... That's amazing advice. Yeah, like you never hit that. Like, I know, I know that like, for example, yeah, it's stupidly anal, but like the the hi-hat 
close mic on the periphery session was kind of clipping a little bit. It's a small diaphragm condenser. I totally should have used a dynamic for that. In the end of the day, like, I don't care. I'm not relying on it at all. Or things like, like even the hi-hat cymbals themselves were pretty loose. That's how Matt plays them. But that means they're kind of firing off to each side as he hits them. They're kind of wavering in the stereo image in the overheads. Like, and I'm bummed about that. But I'm happy that those are the things I'm bummed about, not like the kick drum sounds terrible or the snare drum, the snare top has unusable bleed or, you know, the the bass tone is bad or whatever. So, you know, with every session, I guess I get a little bit closer to that ideal. But just having that as something to chase down it has really changed everything I do. I can second how much better that will make you thinking that way. All the years that I spent around guys that I looked up to, production-wise, forced me to get better because I knew that they might be looking at my track. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. You don't want to be the guy that sends in your track to be mixed to one of your favorite mixers and idols and uh, gets a call back and like, why is this labeled wrong? Why does this sound like shit? Why did you miss a crossfade on this edit? Yeah, <laughs> you know? no, it's crushing. That's a it would be crushing. Really bad place to be, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think drums really is like... I don't know why. I mean, I mentioned earlier, I guess drums was like the thing I wanted to play first and I've always had a soft spot for them. And I guess I really learned a lot about drums through programming them um, when I was starting out. Like, I'm pretty sure I could convince a drummer that I was a drummer as long as I didn't actually have to play. But recording drums, I don't know why. It's just, it's the most technical and fun and stressful. I love it too. I, I love it so much more than pretty much any other part of the recording process. Yeah, um, same here. But it's become this thing which is like really an obsession, like tuning, microphone placement, microphone choice, working with amazing drummers, because as you we were saying earlier, like you just can't you can't deliver the goods without it. But like having that goal of amazing sounding natural drums with minimal sample help just became this goal for me. So you know, that that kind of led me to to the, the like really that and imagining that I was having to show those to other people definitely led me to like a, a the point where I'm at now where I feel really confident about my drum tracking but so speaking of drum tracking man you've worked with some amazing drummers and you're in a band with Matt Halpern who's an amazing drummer I'm sure that you've cultivated some interesting practices um when tracking is there anything that you could walk us through your process of miking or recording that people m- might not expect or that you think are like game changers there's certainly some game changers for me and um so two game changers for me certainly in terms of microphone choice was the sure beta 57 instead of a regular 57 on snare because i don't even think it sounds better in fact i think it kind of sounds honkier and not as nice as a regular 57 (laughs) but the bleed is so much less that i don't have to reach for a sample to get above that bleed level like i can deal with that bleed completely and make it sound like, and then I can EQ and compress my snare top or my snare bus like it's a sample and get a result that has all of the impact and power like a sample does, but that totally has the variation from hit to hit. Um, Cause for me, I don't know, like it kind of breaks the fourth wall for me when I hear every snare drum sounding the same, especially fast rolls. Um, yep, even same if, here. You know, the, the, yeah. yeah, like if I do use samples, I use like multi-sampled, fairly raw recordings, like for example, the GGD samples that we made, there's trigger files available there. I do use those and I have all sorts of samples that I recorded in this very room that I'm in right now, just my little home studio, just, you know, just close mics on a snare where I take a, my snare drums and sample them in every tuning 
that I could think of and I, I tune by ear. Sorry, sorry, by note. I actually tune the heads to specific notes, but like kind of going chromatically up. So I just have this bank of raw snare samples, all multi-sampled. So when it comes to like, you know, if I get sent something to mix, like I got something sent something to mix just last week that I'm working on right now, has a really cranked sounding snare and they've obviously used a regular 57 on it because the bleed is, well, there's tons of it. And I could drop in like a sample that's exactly the same tuning that's going to help me out there. And it's multi-sampled and it's dynamic and it's raw. Um, but for me, like when I'm working with a good drummer, that just bums me out. Like there's nothing worse than having to stick a sample on to cover up for an engineering flaw. Um, so that changed the game for me. Um, the other one is the Shaw Beta 91 on kick, which I know is used a ton live. And, and I know that like there's there's plenty of metal guys that use it too, but... That, that just is the metal kick sound for me. And it doesn't even have to be metal. I know, like, for example, the new Muse album, they used a, a 91 on the kick, but for ease of placement and for just always delivering, like, just the perfect slap and just, just this character that you don't get from a regular dynamic, like, inside the drum, that kind of changed the game. And that enabled me to, again, move away from triggering the kicks. Although I do sometimes, and fairly often, in fact, use a moderate amount of sample on the kick drum just to, to even it out a little bit, but always a multi-sample. So microphone selection-wise, there's that. There's definitely some game changes in terms of how I mix drums, which I guess we can get into a little bit, but I want to save also for the actual nail the mix. Yeah, I was going to say, why don't we save the mixing stuff for for people who actually are going to watch you do it live? Totally, yeah. Like, especially to do with the snare, there's some really cool stuff. You should definitely definitely log in. And to be honest, I don't even know how well I could just explain it. Yeah, It's probably best to see me do it. Yeah, anyone who's listening who uh, doesn't know what we're talking about, on Nail the Mix, Nolly is our guest mixer this month. Uh, View, subscribe at nailthemix.com slash periphery. One, you'll get the raw stems for Prayer Position, the Periphery song. And at the end of the month, well, actually on October 2nd, Nolly will be mixing it live and we'll have a chat room going the whole time. So we'll be able to interact with him and learn what he's doing on that damn snare that sounds so good. Mm-hmm. So I have a question about Get Good Drums. Speaking yeah. of, of, now that you've kind of explained your approach to making drums sound as good as possible mm. so that maybe samples aren't needed, is that kind of what you went for with Get Good Drums to have samples that don't sound like samples, maybe? Um, a little bit. I mean, I think there's, there's companies that are doing an amazing job in terms of realism, especially if you know how to program. And, um, you know, really, there's some, some amazing stuff being done out there. And that was the basis of everything I did. But having gone to those levels with tracking live drums, when I did start to come back to using program drums for certain, you know, certain uh, clients that needed it, or if I'm just demoing with myself, I was kind of shocked, to be honest, at especially the tuning. Like, it's really difficult for me to find sample libraries out there that meet what I consider to be the standard for tuning. Like, I can think of one with Colin Richardson um, drum sample pack had fantastic tuning on it. But really, that's that's one of the the very few exceptions. And I was I was like really bummed out going back to working with these these other libraries and being like, wow, those toms just have all this wobble to them, and the snares are like all weirdly boingy or too dry, I or know have like exactly multiple harmonics mean. going on, or the kick doesn't have the ninety one on it, so it doesn't have the attack that I want, you know. So it's like, <laughs> you know, Matt and I had been talking for a while. Like I mentioned a long time ago in this interview, we really developed our, our working together um, post Juggernaut, doing the live recordings and. 
we were like, you know, we're getting something really cool here. We should do a sample pack. And we did approach a couple of companies and then eventually we just decided to go it alone. And we booked out time in a studio and it was just Matt and I at that point. Um, we booked out a studio and Des joined very soon afterwards. We booked out a studio and we, uh, we just went at it. We did three days of recording. We recorded the same kit that we'd used on Juggernaut, which we knew to be a fantastic sounding kit. We didn't go too crazy with the options, but we wanted them just to be like super in tune solid really wide dynamic range because matt hits really damn hard and and just give loads of articulations make sure the toms sound like the most melodic toms you've ever heard the kick drums have the attack that we like we did like a couple of kick drums we did the toms with clear and coated heads and actually it's kind of eye-opening if you listen the differences there because i guess i'm so methodical with the tuning that the, the tuned almost identically it's it's such a pretty good comparison of clean clear and coated heads and it kind of shocked me how small those differences actually were. But anyway, that's an aside. You know, like a good array of symbols and and uh, recorded in this huge room. It's an amazing kind of just explosive warehouse sounding room. And we didn't know what to expect because it was our first run through really doing it. We thought that maybe the slate trigger aspect was going to be our big seller or like the main point of the thing. Um, and that's what I was intending uh, to be using it for. And I'd, I'd done that in the past, but I'd never gone as far as creating a virtual instrument, which we did in Contact. And we were kind of shocked once we got back the initial beta, the beta version of the, the Contact instrument. We were like, wow, this actually sounds really realistic. The cymbals especially were something which were an unknown to us. And we were like really blown away with how good those came out. And, uh, you know, we, we were like, wow, we really have something here. So we refined it for a long time. Misha joined the fold. Um, and then we finally launched it. I mean, like we recorded these samples, I think, in September or October of last year. And we just launched two and a half months ago now. Um, Everything the first good product. takes time. Yeah. And, you know, of course, we're touring and recording an album and doing all those other things, too. So it was like, you know, it wasn't like straight work on it the whole time. But we're, we're incredibly proud of it. And um, we're just in the process now of of making sure it's more accessible to people that don't want to buy the full version of Contact. And we have some really cool solutions for that coming out. And yeah, we're just we're really really pumped up about it. We have loads of plans for the future. It's not just like a, a one-time thing. Like we definitely we're, we're not planning on just disappearing after this one pack. And yeah, really excited for what the future holds there. But it's just been it's been really cool for me, especially to be able to program drums now and like I solo the overheads and I'm like, wow, that totally sounds like my overheads because I always do them the same way. And you know, it's it's for a reason. And now when I'm programming and mixing with those, it's like I can do all the stuff I normally do to my live drums. And as long as I program carefully, which you have to do, you can't just put everything at full velocity with any sample library because no drummer plays like that. As long as you program well, it, it sounds for me it sounds like what i want to hear so that's been a really really cool thing let me uh just uh, take a moment to say that uh anyone listening if you are a subscriber to nail the mix we have a coupon code for twenty dollars off of get good drums so you know one more good reason and also if uh you're not a subscriber and you want get good drums well uh, maybe subscribe to Nail the Mix and get a discount. So we are starting to run short on time, and we have a bunch of questions from our sure. audience for you. So why don't we do some of that? Of course, yeah. Um, cool. So first question comes from David Fuller, and it's, how much processing do you commit to at tracking? It really depends. Um 
I, I'm not afraid to commit to processing on certain things, um, but there's plenty of other things that I leave pretty raw. Like, and it, of course, it depends on the situation. Like, we recorded the Devon Townsend album at the Armory Studio in Vancouver, which has a huge SSL and it, so much outboard gear. It was ridiculous. So. I totally ran my snare top through a Pultec and an SSL EQ, and it was coming in on an Eve 1073 with EQ, and I went to a distressor. Like, I, I'll totally do that when it's there, but at the same time, there's plenty of sessions where I don't really commit to any EQ on the, the drums, let's say. Um, I definitely don't like to commit to anything more than very subtle compression on drums. I do like to compress drums a lot. That's kind of my thing. Um, but... For certain things, it has to happen at a certain stage in the process, um, which, again, we'll get into more in the masterclass, where it doesn't make sense to compress individual mics, more like groups. Um, and also with things like rooms, if you compress them too much and then edit, sometimes you get weird envelope stuff going on because the compressor is time-based, but if you're changing where the hits are, it kind of sounds weird. Honestly, it's probably not the biggest deal in the world, but you know, it's just something I try and stay away from. Plus, it's just really satisfying to do that later like it's kind of a shame when you pull up an already compressed track because compression is fun um so it is isn't it come on it is <laughs> when i get sent stuff to mix and like the vocals are already compressed i'm kind of bummed or if the the room mics are already compressed just because not because it sounds bad but just because i wanted that fun bit um, <laughs> anyway um yeah, you know, other things, guitars, I'll commit a little bit to. One thing I do a lot, because I work in the box, so lots of the times I'm not having the option of committing to hardware stuff on the way in. But what I might do when I'm editing drums, for example, is print any plugins which I had, like some EQ stuff, maybe on toms that I had when we were tracking to the editor drums and I'm exporting them ready for mixing so that when I'm starting from mixing, I'm starting from something which is probably what I would have done if I mixed on a, if I was tracking on a console and had an EQ on every channel. It's just nice, you know, to to pull up raw drums and not have them sound really dull and, and kind of boinky. For example, on the, the nail the mix stuff, I think the toms had a little bit of mid-cut going on. The snare and kick, the main channels of those were going through API EQs with a fair amount of stuff going on. Um, the rooms had a little bit of compression on. But apart from that, it's mainly just like high pass and stuff like that. So, oh yeah, I actually compressed a tiny bit on the bottom snare as well, I think, on the way in, if I remember correctly. So you do a, a decent amount. Yeah, I guess I do. But, you know, I, yeah, God, we're kind of going back to this thing that we were talking about earlier. It was like, I started out being really gung-ho with everything and then became way more careful with every move until I was really like capturing the source tones as well as I could. And then now I'm kind of back at a point of taking risks, especially because I kind of know how to undo them. Like I'm careful not to, like with the API EQ, it's, it's symmetrical. So if I really want to undo the EQ moves I do, I just do the opposite. Not too worried about that. Perfect. So Abraham Fihema is asking, do you think it's better to focus on perfecting one genre or sound as an up and coming mix producer? And do most of your clients come to you because you specialize in that modern prog sound, should I specialize? I think specialization is a really good thing. I think that you're way more likely to get hired as the guy that's really good at doing something than as the guy that's kind of good at everything, it, at least if you're trying to be hired as like an engineer producer. Um, but I think that you're naturally going to fall into doing whatever it is. Like, whatever you should do, you sh whatever you do, you should be working on music that moves you, if not emotionally, that but makes you feel... Good. I don't know. When really well mixed heavy metal comes on, it feels a certain way that's really satisfying to me. So it's natural that I'd love creating that atmosphere. 
but it could well be that I'm just into all types of music and I get that from all types of music and I'd be kind of clipping my own wings if I didn't explore that. But, you know, just let your sound find you, which is sounds like the worst cliched kind of thing, but that's something which I've noticed happen with me, especially in the last couple of years, as I've developed a lot of these techniques that we've been talking about is like, my taste has led me to a point where now there is a certain coherency to what I do. And I feel like I could work with like a rock band and I could work with a death metal band and they could have something appropriate that still had my sound. And indeed, I think I'm going to be doing exactly that in the near future. So we'll see how those come out. <laughs> but um, but yeah, don't be afraid to develop your own sound. I think that's good. Don't, don't just try and copy somebody else. But um, at the same time, you know, learning a lot about somebody else's style can really inform your own taste. And certainly it, you know, loads of stuff I do, I picked up from other people whose sound I really liked and just kind of appropriated it in my own way, kind of messed it up a little bit by mistake and ended up with something that I like that's different. Yeah, it's kind of technically impossible to actually copy somebody yeah, when it I guess. comes to this stuff. I guess, unless you're really using like virtual everything and DIs. Yeah. That kind of stuff. but And we but know yeah. exactly what they do. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So Tyler Rodriguez is asking, when you track rhythm guitars, do you like to keep the same amp settings and same guitar, or do you switch and change something to differentiate the right and left side? I really like sticking to the same guitar, for metal anyway, because of intonation. Like, even... Well, I don't know. Like, if I have two identical guitars and intonate them identically, they should be pretty damn close. But sometimes if you use, like... You know, different scale length guitars on each side. Even if one is really well intonated on its own, you can run into weird issues when layering. And I'm pretty snobby about tuning a lot of the time, so that can really drive me up the wall. I'm not afraid to use asymmetrical tones, like especially different amps. To me, the cab really defines the overall EQ curve, so as long as the cab is the same, you're probably not even really going to perceive the two different tones as much as maybe a bit of added width. But I will say most of the time I just use the same tone on both sides and enjoy the kind of symmetry that you get from doing that. I do sometimes use like a left-right EQ separately on, on my stereo guitar bus. I might like cut a bit of mids on one side and boost a bit of mids on the other, something I'd, I've done from time to time. I think I did that on the Periphery album, but I certainly do that. It can create a little bit of space in there. I've even done that on the Master Bus before and... I guess it does a pretty similar thing with the, the guitars being hard panned and being most of the mid information, but um, that can be a cool trick. So Charlie Monroe is asking, in what ways would you approach producing a band that you're a member of as opposed to one that you're not a member of? You know, I think something I'm very lucky with is that I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of bands. I think it would be a lot more of a problem if I'd only worked with my own band or if... I don't know, I, I think... The best thing I can recommend, actually, yeah, based on that, is try and work with other bands, bands that you're not emotionally involved with, whether it's the music or the the people around you in the band, or just, you know, that maybe you're going to be recording it at home in really homely atmosphere, but just get a feel for what it's like to record people that you have a distance from, that you're working for in a professional capacity, in a space that's professionally designed, and try and figure out what needs to be maintained from that experience when you work with your own band. Because I think the biggest problem can be getting too casual with it or allowing the emotional nature of any relationship with bandmates to cloud like efficient work or to, to allow conflict to get out of control. I'd say for me, certainly something that is never going to go away is that the amount of stress when working for a periphery record is so much higher for me because these guys are my brothers and while I'm not shouldering all of the responsibility 
I'm respons I'm responsible for a, a great deal of the end sound, and I really don't want to let down all the amazing work that they've put in on their end. So um, be prepared for that extra level of like you you don't want to let down your best friends. But yeah, no, I, I'd say my best advice would be go and work for other people, even if it's not paid. Just go and do that and, and figure out what it's like to work professionally with bands and then bring that back to your band when you work with them. Great. So Tyler Hansen's asking, and I know that you kind of already answered part of this earlier by talking about using the Beta 57, but uh, how do you tame your tom and snare mic bleed to get it to blend into the mix so well? Yeah, so I don't do that on the toms. Um, actually, I don't use... I, I would love to have a hypercardioid version of the Josephson E22s that I use on toms, but they just sound so good that, yeah, <laughs> basically for, for mixing with the snare, I'm going to go over that in great detail and nail the mix. But if you do want to know a little bit, I do a process where I basically only gate the high frequencies of the snare drum. So that the high frequencies in between the hits, which is essentially like all the cymbal bleed gets eradicated, but there's still stuff going on in the mic. It just doesn't have annoying frequencies. That made a huge difference to, to what I do. It only really works if you have a loud signal-to-noise ratio, like signal-to-bleed ratio, because otherwise you really start to cut into the dynamics of the lower, the softer hits on the snare too. But you know, if you want to do some research into what exactly that entails, you might find some cool stuff going on if you do that. Toms, I always strip the silence, and sometimes, inevitably, I end up having to paste in clean samples. If you're in the Nail the Mix thing, you'll have noticed I included some just like one-shot hits of the toms that are clean. Just in case, you know, if Matt's hitting a floor tom with a china, which I'm not a drummer, but I know that that's something really satisfying to do. They're both over there on the right, but it's just the worst thing for bleed. Like a china and the floor tom is, it's just always there. So sometimes you do have to paste in um, clean hits. But, you know, apart from that, it's down to trying to raise the cymbals up a little bit if you can, trying to keep the mics pointing away from the cymbals where you can and maybe a bit more vertically than sounds good. Typically I'd try and mic pointing at the center of the drum, but just to reduce bleed, I generally kind of go a bit more vertically, like perpendicular to the to the head. And having a drummer that hits the toms hard is I guess the last thing. The toms are by far the weakest sounding things on the in on the instrument because you got typically a metal snare that's super loud and and bright. You got cymbals that are just these huge chunks of metal that you're hitting repeatedly, and then you have these poor little wood hoops that are supposed to come you know, <laughs> to uh, to be competitive with that in volume, and it just doesn't happen. So if you've got a drummer that hits your toms really hard, then that's going to be a lifesaver. Someone like uh, Alex Rudinger is the the best when it comes to that. That guy hits toms so hard and system that it's just never an issue uh, he's a he's a beast absolutely yeah and uh by the way listeners the very first month of nail the mix which is included with a subscription you always get month number one is a band called cognizance from england that i recorded in 2014 and alex rudinger played the drums on that so we've got some excellent tracks available of alex's and god he's just so awesome at drums yeah, you're going to be blown away if you if you check out those. I've I I he's a good friend of mine. I mix basically all of his YouTube videos and things he does. So oh, nice. maybe I'm a, maybe a little bit desensitized to it, but it's definitely crazy when you see like you know he's playing some crazy death metal and you can just see every snare hit is exactly the same. Then it comes to like a blast beat and the the volume dips by like almost a measurable percentage, and then just stays at that volume for the entirety of the blast beat and then goes back. It's just it's crazy. There's so many times when I could swear that there's like one snare hit being pasted four times in a row 
on like a fast roll, <laughs> which I just saw him play. Like, it's it's ridiculous how consistent that is. Yeah, man. He and just his commitment to playing is unbelievable. Yeah. You know, in between every take, he's practicing. He's always practicing. He's always. He is drums, basically. Totally. I lived with him for a week, and he's a super sweet guy, and, like, yeah, just made me feel terrible about the amount of time I spend on perfecting Minecraft. So, yeah, he's an inspiration <laughs> for sure. So, last question here. Uh, there's a ton more, but we're just running out of time. And, and plus, we're doing a Q&A next, next week. Well, technically, this week, if you're listening to the podcast... Uh, September 15th, for those of you who are subscribed, we'll be doing a live Q&A chat with Nolly. So be sure to sign up for that. You can find out the, uh, the information inside of your Nail the Mix account under uh, Multitracks. We have a registration link there because there's no way that we can get through all these questions right now. So final question is from Sebastian. And I'm not even going to try that last name. What was the most significant change to your workflow slash mistake you discovered that you wish you knew earlier? I wish I knew earlier. I don't know, but I will say something that really changed my workflow for mixing was when Logic introduced track stacks, which isn't even very long ago, but it's basically, um, yeah, it's, a, it's a folder that acts as a bus at the same time. And it's like just a very quick shortcut to make. Kind of led me down this path, especially with drums of bussing together the multiple mics that I might place on a certain kit piece and simply blending the levels of those mics, but then processing them as a whole. And that kind of, it sounds really minor, but that change in, in mindset going from like asking everyone like, oh, what are you doing to your snare boss? And what are you doing to like your hi-hat close mic? What are you doing to your kick out? And not really knowing what to do with those microphones to just having such a more simple workflow, which is less CPU intensive, gets me the results way quicker. And, you know, in, in many ways, it's more similar to in the analog world, unless you've got a huge console, you're probably going to sum your snare channels down anyway, your kick channels down, or, you know, that's what plenty of people do anyway. Um, and so, yeah, just that, it's not just with drums, with guitars too, with with all sorts of stuff, just made me simplify my process, do more with fewer moves and... um yeah, that really, really changed things. And then I guess, yeah, if we're using frequency analysis as well, which we talked about right at the beginning, that was a game changer for me in terms of consistently achieving the results that I wanted. Because before that, everything that I was doing that was like a serious undertaking was just a nightmare of stress and nerves because I felt like one day it would sound amazing, then the next day it would sound terrible. And yeah, human fallibility really was way bigger deal back then. It still kind of is. Yeah, it's a huge deal, but at least I can be consistent. Yeah, that's that's great. Dude, well, I'm sure that we could talk about this stuff for hours more, but unfortunately, we got to uh, end this episode. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Yeah, we I know that we I know that we have at least another 90 minutes of uh, of being able to talk about this <laughs> yeah, stuff, for but sure. But we still have a Q&A and the live event, so we're going to be talking about this stuff quite a bit in course, the next yeah. few weeks. So I just want to thank you for coming on. No, it's been my pleasure, really. Thank you for letting me ramble about all sorts of stuff that I didn't expect to be talking about. No, Yeah, it was great. awesome, Nolly. Thank you very thank much. You. Yeah, thank you. And uh, look, forward to, uh, look forward to seeing you in a few weeks. Yeah, you will. I guess it's about four weeks. No. Yeah. Three, about six, three, about three weeks now, yeah. Wow. Something like that. Cool. Yeah, it's going to be great. Are you both going to be there? He's counting anyways. I'll, I'll be there. Um, I don't know if anyone else will, but I will definitely be there. 
Cool. I'll be in chat. All right. Remote. Well, um, wicked. I'll see you in a few weeks, Ale. I will cool. e meet you in a few weeks, Joel, <laughs> and maybe Joey too. <laughs> um, yeah, sweet. Take care, guys. Um, and I'm really looking forward to the Nail and Mix thing. It's going to be uh, really good fun. Yeah, it'll be great. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Apex, high-quality analog gear for the recording studio. For over 40 years, the patented Apex Exciter Circuit has been audio engineer's secret weapon for signal enhancement, adding depth and punch to the lows and clarity and sparkle to the highs. Visit Apex.com for more information. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit URM.academy slash podcast and subscribe today.